We are in our last third part of the third part of our series called Hope for the Broken. We started by talking about uh, little Mary and uh, this uh, sweet little girl that was really a nobody. She had she had no uh, heritage that was important to anybody at the time. Now, in truth, she has an enormous heritage, um, as well as her husband Joseph. He's from the line of kings, but he was just a carpenter in a little tiny town that nobody knows about until Jesus shows up there. And so, I was at the nursing home this week. There was a guy. I, there was a guy supposed to speak, and then he got where he, he wasn't going to be there. And so I got called in at the last minute to cover for him. And just as I'm getting ready to do my thing, he walked in. So I went and sat down and listened to him teach. He's from Dolphin Way. And it was very interesting because while he was teaching, he was saying exactly the stuff I've been saying and what I was going to tell the nursing home folks. I was talking to him about the, um, remember in our first series, part of this series, I talked about being dumb as an ox. Um, Jesus, God actually says Israel's as dumb as an ox. And I always thought my dad was insulting me. I didn't know my dad was quoting scripture at me. Um, when he said I was as dumb as an ox. But the truth is, he, Israel is as dumb as an ox. And, and yet, y'all remember the subtitle to this series called Hope for the Broken? What's the subtitle? Y'all remember it? Wait, what? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, because after all the rebellion of Israel and 400 silent years where God didn't speak, God sends an angel to Mary and all of a sudden there's a savior that's going to be born. Then the second part of the series, we looked at the, the shepherds. And uh, the shepherds were the lowliest of the low. They're the lowest class of people uh, beyond, before, or just above slaves. Um, slaves weren't counted as people back in that day. They were, they were not even counted in a census. They were considered to be uh, cattle, considered to be livestock. But, but shepherds sometimes didn't get counted either because they were so lowly. And shepherds had no ability to speak in court. They were not allowed to be testimony in court because they were considered that stupid. Isn't that crazy that they were that stupid? And yet the Lord is our good shepherd and God sends these God sends an angel to tell the shepherds, "Hey, there's a child being born just down the road." And you'll find him wrapped in a manger. Now they don't tell him to go see him. They just tell him where he'll be. Um, you'll find him wrapped in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. These shepherds are not just any shepherds, are they? I mean, yeah, they're just common, average, dumb shepherds, but they're Bethlehem shepherds. They're six miles from the temple. They watch over the sheep that are the sacrificial lambs. They're the shepherds that have to pick out the perfect lambs. They pick out the perfect spotted, spotless lamb and say, this one can go to the temple. And the angel comes to those guys who have no credibility and say, go check out the lamb, the real lamb, the one final lamb. And so Jesus is, is ushered in by these shepherds and by his mom and dad. And we think there were probably animals in the room with him. There's always, always animals gathered around the manger scenes that we see. And we believe that stable would have had some of those because it was the, the barn behind the inn. It's all he was born in. So pretty amazing deal. And yet these shepherds, once they see the Christ child, it says they went and told everybody everything they'd seen. And they glorified God. That's the two things I wanted you to take away from that. They went and told everybody and they glorified God. That's what our responsibility is, by the way. When you see Jesus for who He really is, go tell everybody and glorify Him. That's your life. It's your life's calling. So our third study in this 
Hope for the Broken, is going to be looking at the Magi. I just want you to see who the Magi really are. I want to give you some information that sort of uh, deep into the intellectual side of it. But there's a record of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, there's four Gospels. They're all four written for different purposes. All of them reveal Jesus, but they reveal Him differently. And there's four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew reveals Jesus as the promised King. Jesus as a King. That's why the first chapter of Matthew doesn't start like the other Gospels. It starts with this lineage of who the king's background, the, the background of the genealogy of Jesus and David and Joseph and all that. And it, it just fits Jesus right into that. And then the second chapter deals with the Magi. We're going to see that, which is all about kings, by the way. Gospel of Mark records Jesus as a suffering servant, the servant of man. As a matter of fact, if you want to see Jesus interact with people, the Gospel of Mark, shortest one, is the one you want to read because it's just Jesus one person after another, connecting with them to bless them, to heal them, to help them, to serve them. He's the servant of man. The Gospel of Luke teaches us that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man, and Luke does a great job explaining that. And then, of course, Gospel of John says He is the Son of God Himself and, uh, and reveals Him as God to the Gentile. But it's, it says, in, in Matthew, it says that Jesus is the King He's really the king of Israel, but he's the promised king to Israel and to the world. And I want you to see how that fits today. It's Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to turn there. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, and this is a very important word, and whatever your Bible has, where it has the word magi, it may say in your Bible, wise men. Uh, there may be other words there. You really want to write the word magi. And I'll tell you why in a second. It's magi. It's the only word that fits there. Okay, There were magi from the east that arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Next sentence you might want to mark in your Bible. I really encourage you to write in your Bibles or highlight in those electronic things. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled, the word means agitated. Okay, Underline that. The king Herod is troubled about the newborn king, right? You'll see why in a second. All Jerusalem was with him. All of Jerusalem got nervous about this. Okay, once Herod gets nervous, everybody gets nervous. I'll tell you why in a second. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of, the, of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means among the leader of, Ju of Ju Judah, out of whom shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star in which they had seen in the east went on before them. Watch what the star does. Until it came over and stood over the place where Jesus, where, uh, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. If you're underlining, you might want to note. They saw the child and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures... 
They presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, Magi left for their own country by way of by another way. A lot of theology that's in today's world is comes out of either Christmas cards or Christmas carols. I'm just going to tell you this whole we three kings and the three gifts and all that, making three kings, and that the kings are, we actually have the names of them, supposedly from legend now, we have the names of these guys. Um, and, and some great monk a long time ago dug up three skulls, found their three skulls, and, and believed those were the three kings. And, and, you know, when he dug up these three skulls that were all three together, he thought, well, surely that has to be the three kings. Yeah, that can't be anybody else in the world. It's just three, three skulls. They're skulls, by the way. They're skulls. Three skulls. They have to be the, the three kings. And you, you know that those three skulls are in a museum now in, in Europe. You can go to a museum and see these three skulls of the three kings. Okay? Couldn't just be a family that passed away. Couldn't be three soldiers that were buried in the same deal. They had to be the three kings. Some, some guy figured all that out without any DNA, without any history. You know, to, they just had to be the, th- I don't know if they were all facing Jerusalem when they died or, you know, how that works. But somehow along the way, um, we've come to distort this whole story to be something that it's not. And, and, uh, I love the hymn. I, I played it on my guitar before service. We three kings of Orient are. Okay, but it wasn't three kings, it was three magi. So let me just run you through real quick. We're going to talk about the magi, then we're going to talk about Herod, we're going to talk about the star, and believe it or not, in the next few minutes we're also going to talk about the Apostle Paul, because he's really important to this story. So, the magi is an untranslatable word. That's why I wanted you to write the word magi in your Bible. It's not a word you can translate to wise men. It much later became called, they became called wise men, but it was after the whole concept of who the magi really are got watered way down way down so wise men are sort of the watered down way weak version of who the magi really are and the people that came to see jesus were magi and there's no other translation for that word than magi and i'll help you understand what that means they were a high-ranking group of priests that were with the medes and the persians from the far east okay so they came from the the Medes and the Persians, you a little bit of your history, you know there's some big dominant times in history. Babylon conquered the world at one point. Then the Medes and the Persians conquered the world. Then the Greeks conquered the world. And then the Romans, when Jesus' time, the Romans conquered the world, right? So you got all these giant um, groups of people. Well, the Medes and the Persians actually are woven through every one of those. And history records, they go all the way back to... The Ur of the Chaldees, like in Abraham's day, there was a group of priests, priestly. Now they're not, they're not priests of God, our God, one God. Although they're monotheistic, they're not priests of God. They're actually just priestly people that that try to determine spiritual matters, and they also become very educated. That they, they later became men of great learned wisdom. They studied astrology, astronomy, occult practices. They were big into the occult. They studied governments. The four dominant world powers that existed have evidence that the Medes and the Persians were in and involved in influencing every one of those deals. In some ways, my younger generation, you would call these the Illuminati of the Scripture. They literally control control great powers in every culture. And you'll see that in just a minute in how you see all this. So 
Um, when you study the Medes and the Persians, they were highly influential. The Magi had a particular set of rules. The original Magi from the Medes and the Persians had a particular set of rules and commandments. They were laws that made governments strong because they studied how people interact with each other, how governments interact with each other, how commerce works. They studied science and all this other stuff. And, and so they came up with these laws, and it's called the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Now, anybody that studied your Bible a little while, you know that phrase from an Old Testament passage. Not a New Testament passage, but an Old Testament. The laws of the Medes and the Persians. There was actually a, a young man, Daniel, in the Old Testament who was captured and put on trial by the law of the Medes and the Persians. And I'm going to show you that, okay? So in the Old Testament, Daniel, as a little boy, was captured by Babylon. Israel fell under judgment, and the nation of Babylon swooped in, took away all the smart kids and the young kids and the, the promising kids, and uh, put everybody else into slavery or killed them. And Daniel and his friends all became subservient to Babylon. Now that puts a line of God's chosen people into a evil culture known as Babylon, right? And and early on in Babylon, we, we learned that you had to bow to this great idol. There's a story in, in Daniel where you had to bow to this great idol. Um, and there were three guys that said they would not bow. Yeah, we want to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Pastor Sand says don't say those words. Those are Babylon names. That's their, that's their pagan names. Their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they would not bow to this idol because they had one God. And King said, you know what, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't. Okay, throw me in the fiery furnace. And they throw them in the fiery furnace, and remember, they weren't burned up at all. Matter of fact, there was a fourth man in the fire with them when they looked in. You know, and we believe it was Christ Himself there to stop them from being harmed. They came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. This all happened in Daniel's day, 600 years before the story of the Magi coming to see Jesus, right? 600 years before. Now, do you think that the, the rulers of that day and the brain trust of Babylon at that time, do you think they took note of three guys that were thrown in a furnace? prayed to their God, Jehovah God, and were not burned up. When they prayed to Yahweh, they were not burned up. Do you think they took a little note of that? You bet they did. Do you think a little later, when the governors and the satraps, the, the governors of the ruling uh, part of Babylon, decided they didn't like Daniel because he had, he had risen so high in, the, in King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, that they wanted Daniel thrown into the... Uh, into a den of lions and eaten. So, so they made a, a rule, a law. They, they asked the king, would you make a law that, that everybody has to just honor and worship you? That, that when, the, when you hear the sound of the, there's all these great instruments um, that can be played, and you hear the sound of these, all these instruments, we all have to bow and worship you. Well, they knew Daniel wasn't about to do that. And so Daniel continued to pray to his God, as he always had, and, and when they sealed that law in Daniel chapter 6, when they sealed that law so that it could not be changed, they sealed it with this law. It's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. We say, well, it was the Babylonian Empire. Yes. And the Medes and the Persian Magi were part of the Babylonian Empire. Let me show it to you in, Matthew, in Daniel chapter 5. Look in Daniel chapter 5. 
And this is another crazy story in the book of Daniel. There's a finger, there's a hand that's writing on the wall during a king party, right? They're having this big party. And there's this hand that starts writing on the wall. I mean, a hand just appears and starts writing words on the wall. And the king calls his wise men, his magi in, to interpret. And they can't. And then the queen goes, don't, don't panic. There's this guy named Daniel. We've got him down in prison. You know, we, get, we captured him a long time ago. He can interpret dreams. Remember, he interpreted the other dream. So, so here it is in Daniel chapter 5. The queen, chapter 5 verse 10, The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, lives forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him as, look at this, appointed him, Daniel, she's talking about Daniel, as chief of the magi, not magicians, that's our translation today. He's chief of the magi. Who's chief of the magi? Daniel. Daniel's not a magi. He's not from the far east. He's an Israelite. He has a devout faith in God. And he was appointed as chief of the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and diviners. So the teacher of the rulers, of the teacher of the wisest men in Nebuchadnezzar's day, 600 years when Babylon was ruling, 600 years before Jesus was ever uh, coming to, to earth, the teacher of the teachers is a guy named Daniel. He brought the information to the Magi. You, you don't think he, don't you think he quoted a ton of Moses' laws and writings to those guys and explained to them all the history of Israel and what God had done and who God really was? The Magi soaked all that stuff in. They soaked all that stuff in. He was hot. Daniel was highly influential. Highly influential during that time. And because the Magi were, when you study their history, they're monotheistic. They, they believe in one God, not multiple gods, little g. Like most of the other cultures at that time, they all had little gods of everything. There's the God of the sun, God of the moon, God of the water, God of fire, you know, God of air, you know, God of fish, God of birds. There's gods of everything, right? Not the Magi. Magi believe there's one. And they're always trying to figure out which one is the one. Wasn't that interesting? Because God says, listen to this. God says to the prophet many years before, to Jeremiah, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And then he planted this seed of truth through Daniel into the Magi, into this line of people that literally influenced world powers for years and years and years. And so the Magi were monotheists. When they converse with Herod, they understand prophecy. And they're talking to him about the prophecy. Now here's what I want, to, I want you to hear as an application, first of all. And I want all my young people to look right at me and hear, and hear me crystal clear, okay? Now I want you, you can all listen to this, but this is real important, okay? Don't you ever think, because the culture we live in is all messed up and not focused on God, it's actually abandoning God, rejecting God, and cursing God, and pushing God out of everything. Don't you think for a second, you can't be a dominant influence in this culture. Daniel was a captive of a foreign land that had horrible theology, horrible political, everything was bad about Babylon. 
And Daniel influenced a line of thinking that led to the Magi searching and finding Jesus. Right? So don't you think for a second you can't be of some great influence. And you can literally change the world with truth, but you got to know the truth. Daniel was a young man caught up in a system that was ethically and morally and politically polar opposite of what his God's values were. But he stuck to his values with God and he made a huge difference. The Magi were very powerful and influential people. As a matter of fact, this is, this is important. The Magi became called in the ruling classes of men, not common day people. They just called them, common day people called them Magi. Oh, there go the Magi. <laughs> you know? But in the ruling class, they were called king makers. That's what they're called, king makers. So when the king of kings is born in Bethlehem, Guess who's going to show up? Guess who historically is going to show up? Do you think God was maybe pointing everything in the entire history of mankind right to that little tiny town? Right to the little tiny town. And saying, the kingmakers are coming. The shepherds, by the way, are going to identify him, And then they're going to go tell everybody. And then a few week, months later, we believe, we believe the kingmakers, the magi... We believe they showed up inside of two years, maybe 18 months. He's not in the stable anymore. He's actually, it says in, the, in our story we read, he's in the house. He's in the, the house of Joseph. And he's already been to the temple. We believe Jesus has already been to the temple for his, his uh, you had all these things you had to do with a newborn baby, you bring him to the temple and you have to pay all the, do all those offerings and stuff. And the offerings that Mary and Joseph brought at that time were the poorest of offerings. The poorest of offerings. They, they brought... Uh, two turtle doves. Now the kings are going to bring them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You think if they had that, they'd have just brought turtle doves? No. So the kings hadn't showed up yet. The kingmakers, the magi, haven't showed up yet. But after all of that takes place, and we believe it's months later, these kings come into town, and they don't come in, by the way, just sneaking around. When these magi travel, they travel with a cavalry, not camels, Appreciate the camels, by the way. Love the nativity scene. But not camels. They might have used camels for carry some of the weighty stuff. But the truth is, they always travel with a cavalry. A group of army guys. And they were, they were guys that rode big fancy steeds. Persian steeds. And the cavalry would ride a before. The cavalry's got to protect these. These are the smartest people on the planet. So they got their own security team, cavalry, and they're protecting all this gold and frankincense. Right? It's very expensive stuff. So think about Herod for a minute. He's sitting in his palace, just you know, fat, dumb, and happy. Evil, by the way, very evil man. And all of a sudden, there's there's a turmoil in town, and and you look out, you look out your palace window, and here comes the cavalry of who? Well, who are those? What are those signs? What are those flags? What are those symbols? What are those clothes they're wearing? Well, they're from the Far East. Who are the? That's the kingmakers. The what? Well, who is Herod? Herod's the king of the Jews. Let me tell you that story. So, so here's the deal. Herod rules the province of Rome. He oversaw the land of Israel, the home of the Jews. Now, Israel had been a troubled group for years. Anybody that captured them and held them captive found them to be very complicated people, okay? Because they belong to God and they don't like being pushed around and God tends to eventually, people that push on Israel get pushed back by God. So I wish the World Council and the 
UN would pay good attention to that today. Okay, you start pushing on Israel and things happen. Um, by the way, there's a great book called, uh, I want to say it's called The Eye of the Storm, but you can check me when I get to my office if you want to see it. It's a great book that describes all the national catastrophes we've had in the U.S. since 1991. The 10 worst calamities we've had in the U.S. We're talking about the hurricanes, the floods, Katrina, all the bad stuff. We were, we were going to the table to negotiate, to ask Israel to negotiate its lands away to Palestine. We were trying to get Israel to give away land to the Palestinians, right? Palestinians are not the good guys. And so, so America decided we need to help make this happen. So Clinton and Bush and all the presidents have always kept trying to make that happen. Every time we go to the table to do that, something horrible happens in our country on global scale, I mean, on a huge scale. And I have a book that describes every bit of that, and it's literally to the day. The day Hurricane Katrina hit, the UN Council is meeting with our ambassadors and Israel's ambassadors, and we're saying, here's our goal. Please give up some of your land to Palestine. Israel's going, no, I'm not going to do that. But because we're asking, God's going, hey, pay attention. Here comes the worst storm you're ever going to see in a long time, right? All the big storms. So when you mess with Israel... You've messed with some things. Well, the king, king Herod knows that, and he actually has a lot of lineage and ties to Israeli people. And so he goes to the Romans and realizes, I can get a lot of influence. So in 40 B.C., 40 years before Christ, 30 or 40 years before Christ, um, he was appointed the ruler, and he went to the ruling class. They were called the Senate of Rome back in the day. They had a real fancy name I can't ever pronounce, so I just call them the Senate. It'd be like our senators. And he started explaining to them how good of a leader he is and how he can make the Israelites behave. Because he understands their theology and understands their God and understands their, the class of people they are, and he can work with them. And he influenced that Senate group so well that they literally gave him an honorary title. The honorary title is King of the Jews. You, Mr. Herod, are going to become King of the Jews. Dun, 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 dun. And off he goes back to his homeland to rule in Galilee as king of the Jews. Is he the real king? No. Is he appointed by God? No. Do magi show up on Calvary Persian steeds and go, Hey, Mr. Herod, where's the king of the Jews? And he's like, that, Aren't you looking at me? These are kingmakers. These are the kingmakers, and they're looking at Herod going, where's the king? You know what Herod knows all of a sudden? He's not the king, right? And that's why you're going to see there's a lot of bad things. He was a very bad man. He had his family killed five, month, five days before his own death. And he had a lot of his family just murdered so that nobody could take over his kingdom. He is sick and dying, and five days before he dies, he has one son that's not been killed. One son. And five days before he dies, knowing he's dying, he has that son killed. Three days before he dies, he has all of the wealthiest Jewish people in the, in the province rounded up and imprisoned with his guards. He has them all put in prison. And they're going, why are we in prison? They didn't do anything wrong. He goes, I know, but when I die in a few days, nobody's going to be sad for me. But the minute I die, I want you to kill everybody that's in prison. Kill the entire Everybody in prison dies, and then all these families are going to weep and mourn over my death. Right? That's the evil that King Herod is. So when the Magi show up and go, where is he who's born king of the Jews? You read, it, 
the word is agitated. He was agitated, all right. He was deeply troubled that he was fixing to lose his kingdom. And you guys know some of the story where he actually sent his guards out to kill the children, all the children under three years old. You know, any, any child, any male child under three years old was killed in that culture. That's horrible, by the way. Horrible. What a terrible, terrible man. So the kingmakers were in town. And by the way, it's at a time when, when Rome, the military of Rome was at its weakest point historically. They were very weak. They were fighting on three other fronts across the country. And the leaders of the Roman army had taken Herod's army, his little bitty army that kept the Jews in check, took, took the guts out of it and took them all away. So now you see Herod on his balcony trying to figure out who's riding into town. He has no army. The Roman army itself is very weak and far away. And here comes a cavalry of people. And they're going, show us the king. He's like, well, I'm not the king. No, no, we want to see the real king. That's why Herod got very troubled. These men have great power and they are king makers. So then there's this star. And this star comes up in the story. And it's called in verse 2, this is real important. In verse 2 it's called his star. Now there's a lot of study to this. The Greek word is aster, A-S-T-E-R. And it's a word that just means a spreading of light, kind of like a carpet or a bedspread. It just means that there's something extremely bright that spreads out from, from whatever that is. It's used of many different things, not just stars. It can refer to, to giant lights, uh, fires, and that kind of thing you can see from a distance. So, But the star, according to Herod, the star appeared... When he researched it with the Magi, they said, well, it appeared. And then the star moves over the home where Jesus is, and then it stops. Okay, now I'm just going to say to you, not, in a, not a real scientific guy. I did teach in eighth grade. I did teach some science at some point. Uh, eighth grade science, so I've got a little bit of that. I'm going to tell you that stars don't stop. Okay? So whatever this was that stopped has to be different than just a plain old star. And it's not called a star like all the other stars in the Bible. When they refer to stars in the other Bible, in the rest of the Bible, um, they're not his star. They're just stars. This star has a particular link to Jesus. And by the way, it didn't stop over the end, but it stopped over Joseph's home. And it stood still over his house. So I, here's what I'd like you to consider. I want you to consider this fact. In Luke chapter 2, we studied this a couple weeks ago. In Luke chapter 2, when the shepherds are meeting with Jesus, or meeting with the angel, remember what happened? It says that they told him all this, the information, and then the glory, they started, the glory of God fell, and it became where they could see all these angels singing, heavenly angels. It's like the, the, like heaven cracked open because they were announcing to the shepherds, to us, the Savior's born to you. A Savior is born to you. And the angels get all freaked out by that. And it says the glory of God filled that place. Now, do you think the glory of God might be a little bright? Might be a lot bright? Might have brightened up a whole section of the sky? And there's a whole bunch of magi that have been tracking real stars. They did track real stars, by the way, for years, 600 plus years. They tracked real stars and they're watching all this stuff. And there was some unique celestial stuff that happened during Jesus' day, right? So they're tracking real stars. But then all of a sudden, you know, looking through whatever it is they got that they're looking through, the little scopes they can make, there's this 
when, when the angel tells the shepherds and the glory of God sings out through those angels with those shepherds and they're praising God, right? When all that happens, there's this bright moment in Bethlehem. And the, shep- the, the magi go, Bethlehem, let's look that up and let's Google Bethlehem in our books. Right, so they Google Bethlehem. They go, oh, that's where the that's where the Savior of the world. That's how it's described in the Old Testament. That's where the Savior of the world is going to be born. The King of the world, He's coming to save everybody. That's where He's going to be born. And they're like, oh, pack your stuff. Here we go. Calvary loaded up. So that may have started their journey. Right, just just roll with me for a minute. That may have started their journey, and then they get all the way to find Jesus, and somehow they find Him, the star they're looking for. The star they're looking for is over his house. How would that be? And it's not just a star, it's his star. I believe it's his glory. I believe he veiled his personal glory as a little baby. He's not sitting there glowing. You know, all the pictures have a little halo around Jesus everywhere he goes. Got this little yellow thing going around his head. Okay, I don't think, I don't think the baby had a glowing head. Okay, I, I think with all my heart though, that the glory itself could not be contained and it could not be hidden from everybody, especially people that are seeking it. These guys are seeking to see the real king. They want to see the savior of the world and they've been seeking him for centuries. And all of a sudden, his glory appears, boom, over the shepherds and they go, there he is, let's go. And off they go. Then they get to the town and they go, where can we find the king? And, you know, mumble, rumor, 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 rumor. Well, there's a baby. If you're looking for a baby, there's a, a new baby been born down there. Mary and Joseph got a baby. They look, there it is, the glory. And you go, well, why didn't everybody else see that? That's a great question. Just remember that the glory of God in the Old Testament shines very brightly. When you see it in the Old Testament, it actually caused Moses' hair to change color. Remember, his face was different. When, 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 when Moses saw the backside of the glory of God, it dramatically changed his appearance. So God's glory is big time, right? It's very powerful. Now, consider that fact. There's this pillar of fire in the Old Testament that guides. Remember the shep- the, the Magi are seeking. There's a pillar of fire that guides Israel all through its, its, its journey in the wilderness. I want you to just look at this story in Exodus real quick. There's a particular moment I want you to see. Exodus 14, verse 19. verse should be up here. The angel of God, the angel of God, that's Jesus, by the way. The angel of God is Jesus, who had been going in front of the camp. I tweeted this verse out this week. It's a beautiful verse. Who had been going in front of the camp of Israel because Israel's on the run from Egypt and the Egyptian army has started chasing them now. They're going to get trapped at the Red Sea. You know the whole story. Egypt set them free. Pharaoh set them free. But now they're going to get trapped, right? So this angel is, he's been, they've been going in front of the camp moved and went behind them. Well, why did the angel go behind them? Because there's an army back there that needs to be held off. The pillar of cloud moved in from in front and stood behind them. That's the angel. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud along with darkness, even by day to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians saw this dark cloud that they couldn't see through or see around or get around. But what did Israel see? But it gave light by night to the Israelites. So one, Israel, or Egypt, did not come near the other all night. Egypt can't get past it because it's the glory of God. 
And it's the guidance of God and the protection of God over Israel, His people. And they see it as total darkness, and Israel sees it as light. So you say, well, if there's this beautiful shining moment for the shepherds, and there's this beautiful shining moment for the magi, why didn't the whole town of Bethlehem go, oh, it's the star? Because they're living in darkness. They can't see what they're not seeking. They're living in total darkness. Nobody really saw it except the people seeking. The people willing to open their eyes and see the truth. We're able to see the truth. You follow me? Man, what a beautiful story. God says, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. I will make myself known to those who seek me. And 600 years before, I'm going to show the Magi how to come and find me. God can reveal Himself and His light to some and conceal it from the others. Now, there's another guy that has a similar story. His name is Paul. I'm going to give you a five-minute Paul lesson. Paul was on a road to Damascus. And he was a bounty hunter. His job on that Damascus road, he had a list of names of people that were considered to be seeking Christ. They were Christ followers, Christians. He's going to get those names and he's going to capture those people, turn them over to the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders are going to imprison them and maybe turn them over to Rome. Because Rome wants to squelch this whole Christianity thing that's taken root, and the, the powerful Jews, who Paul was one of, wants to do the same. And he's got letters from the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. He's got letters with names on them. We believe, by the way, one of those names is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James. We believe his name is on the list that Paul is carrying on the way to Damascus, or on, on the Damascus road. And then all of a sudden, you remember the story? Acts chapter 9 records it. Remember the story? There's this kaboom moment where it's described as lightning. And Jesus Himself speaks to the Apostle Paul and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, I'm not persecuting any. I'm persecuting the church. Well, yeah, Jesus goes, I'll take that personal, by the way. I I like that. He takes it personal. When you get persecuted, He takes that personal, right? Why are you persecuting me? Now, it says that the soldiers that were with him, the bounty hunting soldiers with him, did not hear Jesus, did they? They heard thunder. They heard thunder. Isn't that interesting? Jesus revealed himself to Paul. And he stopped him dead in his tracks. And he says, Paul, you got to stop this. And Paul went from being, I'm just going to skip to the end for you. Paul went from being a bounty hunter trying to capture Christ followers to a missionary who is building Christ followers city by city, town by town, village by village, province by province. He went from being a murderer to a missionary just like that when he met Jesus. And the light of truth just peeled open. By the way, he was struck blind that day. He was blinded so he could see the truth. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It does to Jesus. It makes tons of sense to Jesus because Paul's on this mission that he thinks is the right mission. He thinks he's serving God. And Jesus stops him in his tracks and goes, what are you doing? And turns him all around and has him literally follow Jesus. Now, I want you to see this passage Paul writes. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Give me two, two verses. Romans 1, verse 5, or verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So there's Paul referencing the Old Testament prophets. We've looked at some of that. Concerning his son Jesus, who descended from David. There's the lineage. According to flesh, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. There's Jesus' whole life story right there. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and Paul's apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So Paul's saying he's the Son of God. He was prophesied from of old in, in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, in the fullness of time. When was the fullness of time? Well, I had to get the Magi set up. I had to get the shepherds ready. I had to get Mary and Joseph ready. And then all of this time comes together. When the fullness of time, Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, but He was not under the law, by the way. And so 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, it's our last passage this morning. I know I've been wordy and long. I'm hoping you see some beauty in this. I'm going to give you a real good challenge here in one second. 1 Timothy chapter 1, listen to what Paul says. This is Paul's personal testimony. Why is it important? Why is it important that we see Jesus for who he really is? Not just a baby in a manger, but he was really the king. Why did we why did God send kingmakers to give him gifts and worship him? Because he is the king, even though he's a child. He's the king, and God wanted everybody to know the internationally known kingmakers are going to show up at his house and hand him gifts and worship him because he's the king, and he's got a kingdom. Paul writes, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now, here's his testimony. Remember our elevator testimonies? And I've used this before to teach y'all. Your elevator testimony can come right out of here. Love to show some of you how to do that soon. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor. That's his testimony. It's where I used to be. My past B.C. before Christ. And then he says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy... So that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ could demonstrate His perfect patience. Why did Jesus come to this earth? To save guys like Peter. Remember we studied Peter last week who was an absolute mess, two weeks ago? Absolute mess. Remember the skit we did last week where we had the guy that was the absolute mess? Right? That's why there's hope for the broken. Paul says, I was an absolute mess. I was a violent aggressor and a persecutor. And he came and showed grace to me. Now, and look at what he says. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that he could demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. I believe every one of you that know Christ your Savior, you have a testimony that can say, God demonstrated his perfect patience with me and gave me Jesus as my Savior. Grace came to me, and I don't deserve it. I'm the chief of all sinners. But look how he ends the whole thing. Verse 17, listen to this. Now to the King eternal... You think Paul understood the Magi a little bit more than we did? He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. To the King, His declaration, when He understands His salvation, is I'm going to say to the King eternal. So here's my question for you as we close. 
Will you, like Paul and like the Magi, let him be your king? You know, when you appoint somebody as king in your life, you're completely submitted to them. They're in charge. They rule. And you say, you're the king, I'm a servant. Tell me what to do. Okay? Now here's what's beautiful about this. The kingmakers came and declared Jesus to be the king that he already had been sent by God to be. Paul acknowledges him to be king when grace comes into his life. Grace has come to you. So you get the chance to make him your king. To make him your king. Is the king looking for slaves? No. We are no longer slaves. He didn't come to make you servants. He came to make you sons and daughters. The king of all kings. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross to make you sons. To make you daughters. To make you His personal Children, He adopted you as sons. When That's what it says in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son to be born of a virgin to adopt us as sons and daughters. You're part of the family. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. 